0: This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story. Written and narrated by New York Times best selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold.
1: For the first time, I see someone I can relate to. You see, because the church was trying to put on a three-piece suit. They were trying to put on all this stuff. And I was just like, this is not my world. I'm an athlete. You know, athletes go around with joggers and, you know, slides on all day, you know. And so now all of a sudden, you're trying to put all this on. And I was just like, that's just not me. And so I see for the first time, man, this dude, like, who is authentically him, but also loving Jesus. And I was like, I'm sold.
2: This is Where You're From, an origin story podcast at the intersection of faith and culture that digs into the influences and experiences that shape who we are today. Join us as we gain insight into the Bible's wisdom for all, regardless of where we're from. Hey, y'all, this is Rasul Berry. Thanks for joining me on Where You're From. This week, I'm pleased to share my conversation with my very good friend, Dr. Dahadi Lewis. Dahadi Lewis serves as the lead pastor of Blueprint Church, as well as the founder and president of My Boulevard, an organization focused on helping disciples thrive where they live, work, and worship. You can find out more about Dahadi by clicking the links in the show notes or by visiting whereyoufrom.org. That's where, Y-A, from, dot O-R-G. Please join me as I ask the hottie Lewis,
1: where are you from? You know, when people ask the question where I'm Mm -hmm. from, I was kind of like nomadic. I moved around so much. My dad played pro football. So I was born in Hollywood, moved to Canada, then stayed in Canada for about five years. Then I went to um, New Orleans, was there for about five years and then back to SoCal, Mm. Was that because of your dad's playing career? Yeah. Yeah. Some of the first basically 10 years of my life was pretty much moving around to where he was. So all the way okay. to about the fifth grade. Got you. But SoCal still- SoCal LA, Lakers- <laughs> Come on, baby. <laughs> gotcha. You know what I'm saying? Lakers, <laughs> L.A., SoCal. That's it. That's all. I'm all uh, so where I'm from, I'm not confused about where I'm from. I'm from L.A. SoCal, right? And and that has rubbed off in terms of your weather preferences. Oh, 100. I'm bougie with my weather. You know, there's a couple <laughs> things. I'm not going to say I'm a bougie person, but when it comes to my weather, I'm bougie. I'm a. I'm in the ATL. I love the ATL. It's it's treating me well. But you know, I'm a SoCal, so I'm a, like mm. it. Don't I don't like to get lower than 60. I don't, you know, don't like to get higher than 80. And then, you know, I'm complaining anywhere between 60 and 80. Like if I'm, if it's beyond that, I'm complaining. I can't do it.
2: Gotcha. That's a small window. So tell me a little bit more about your family situation. You mentioned your dad played in the NFL. What was that like?
1: Yeah. Growing up, I was, you know, my dad and my mom, but then also had three other siblings. So I was the middle child, right? Mm -hmm. So I had an older brother, my older brother, Reggie. And then I had a younger brother, which is a Show Baraka. And then I have my younger sister, you know, as Vanjim. And so I was the kind of the middle boy. And so like my older brother got all the attention because, you know, he was the oldest. My younger um, brother got attention because he, even though he was a middle child show, because he had asthma and he was always sick. So that's how he got his attention. And then my sister was the youngest and the girl. So she got all the attention, period. Mm. And then there was me. So early in life, basically football became my God because of you know, I remember playing my very first football game. I was five years old, first tackle football game. I got like five touchdowns. And my dad came to me and was just like, man, you have a God-given talent. And I was like, that's it. Bing. Mm. I was just like, that's how I'm going to get my attention. And so at that moment, those were life-shaping and life-changing words. And Mm. that was pretty much kind of how I got my identity early in life. And God gave me some talent. Mm. So as I moved around, and I did all the things that I did. It was always about football. You know, growing up, trying to find purpose, trying to find, mm. like, do I matter? Do I belong? And that's been the question over my head from mm. from jump.
2: So it sounds like you latched on early on to, you know, sport. And I guess you mentioned that one moment where your dad was like, you got a guy given talent. And did that continue in terms of his support and affirmation of you as you continued to go through the ranks playing football?
1: Yeah, 100 Mm percent. But it was not just for him. It was from everywhere. You know, I mean, I, I was the kid. That was like in the third grade, other teams, Pee Wee teams, would come and offer me like 10 speed bikes and $100 or whatever to, you know, hey, come switch to my team. Well, I'll get you this, I'll get you that. Mm. And like affirmation mm. that just came from that. And it was like, you couldn't tell me anything. So I was a very, grew up a very prideful individual. Mm. And as an athlete who experienced that, It's intoxicating. Mm. That was the very thing that where I got my affirmation, where I belonged, where I mattered, where I excelled and thrived. It's separate. It distinguished me from everyone else. Mm. I
2: I think you're probably the only person I've talked to before who grew up as a child whose parent was literally in the NFL, played football. Like, I'm just kind of curious about, you know, for those of us who haven't experienced that, like- what was that part like, like the aspect of just being in that environment, being in
1: that space? First of all, we got to understand it was before pro athletes were making money like they do now. So it wasn't like that, but we were well off. I, I would say, you know, we lived in upper middle class kind of thing. I remember just going over other pro athletes house and being into the locker room after in, after the game and wanted it. To be like my dad, and I wanted to, in every mm. sense of the word, you know, be a pro athlete like him. And so, just growing up was really, really exciting. But I have a, a tell of multiple stories in mind because with the story that oftentimes people don't tell you is that when my dad got cut in the fifth grade, we went from, you know, having all of the money to literally we were on welfare a year later. Mm. You know, and so we went from Mm. one extreme all the way to the other extreme. Mm. And then my parents that ended up, they separated. So they didn't officially divorce them, but they were pretty much done at that time. My dad disappeared from the time I was in the fifth grade to about the time that I was in eighth grade. So I moved into more of that typical inner city kid story, right? Where you have a bunch of moms, my aunts and cousins. So cousins grew up like siblings and you know and and it was all the women but none of the men were were there the only people the only men that was there was granddad pops we called him and you know and I remember pops was the only male figure um that we had and that's kind of what we did but again mm. during that time I played football so I was just like man it was still good everything was it was good cuz as long as I had football I was good let me just pause cuz i mean what you described is a shocking
2: change of fortunes right what do you remember about when you realized things were changing? Like, was it, did he sit you down and say, we got cut? Or was it when y'all had to move to a different place? Like, when did you know, oh, life is different now?
1: You know, you have those those moments that you remember. And I remember my dad walking down the street, coming back after training camp. And I was just like, dad's not supposed to be here, you know? And he came back and, you know, in his words were, I got traded and I never forget that. Right. I got traded. And then that was it. Right. I knew things change when my mom told us that we were moving back to Cali and we're going to be living with grandmommy. Right. My grandmother pops and all that. And that's what happened. We moved back. And this is the the big thing that I knew that I changed. And many people don't know this. The day we went back, one of my aunts picked us up and We were in the car all night in like what they used to call the jungle in Cali, right? Mm -hmm. It was basically the gardens. And then come to find out later, like we were just, I mean, in the hood, hood, and there was guns involved and all these things. And I was like, I felt like it was sketchy the whole time. But then it was just like, man, life, it felt like my life was on the line because, like we had all these kids. And again, I was the middle kid. So my older brother, you know, he's probably 12, 13. I'm nine, 10, I'm about 10 years old. Show is about six years old. And Manj is about four or five years old, my younger sister. And so we're here and we're literally being left in the car, you know, in the nighttime in these hoods, like the projects of LA and things are going on. And it was just like, this ain't right. Something ain't right. But that's the point where I knew my life was changed. Right then, wow. something different wasn't happening. That next morning, I got to Paris, California, where my grandmother lived. And that was two hours away from the airport. But somehow it took us a whole night, and we were pulling up in that morning. Wow. What do you remember about that adjustment and going
2: from, you know, like you said, fifth grade, living it up to now government assistance and struggling?
1: Yeah, I mean, and again, when I when I say struggling, I'm talking it's probably struggling financially, but we also had aunts and family, and, and I just remember that time. It was just like I got really close to my cousins, first cousins, and you know, mm-hmm. because all of my aunts had kids, and so mm-hmm. like from that time, we was just like we're all like brothers and sisters. That's kind of how we grew up from that fifth grade, pretty much all the way until college that's what that's what it was like hmm. but it was that time you know coming home and you you know you smelling the weed you're smelling the stuff you you know it's just kind of like all of the stuff that like this the uh, typical hood hmm. story was right. was the world and and part of it is is that what people don't know is especially around these athletes my dad's from New Orleans his mom was murdered at hmm. 12 years old. she was a prostitute. I never met my grandmother. Wow. So when he was 12, she was murdered. She was a prostitute. My dad went to go look for that dude. And they was like, we got to get Reggie out of here. So they got my dad and they moved him out to Los Angeles, Crenshaw. Mm -hmm. And for those who don't know, explain when you say Crenshaw, you know, what that means. Crenshaw is basically we're in the heart of LA. That that place that I was telling you about that when I when I went back when and we were was driving around, on. yeah, you know, yeah, that's that's Crenshaw. Like, you, you know, the best reference I would say is go go watch Boys in the Hood, right? You know, because that's that's kind of the the area. That's where they yeah. grew up, and that's where, you know went to went to school. My dad, like, he was all city team player of the year at Crenshaw High School. He mm-hmm. all of those things. Wow. that's his journey and so so i oftentimes go back and says my dad did what's best hmm. right knowing with the twos that he had my dad didn't my dad's dad cheeky which is my granddad who passed away but he never even claimed my dad until he was until he made the, made it to the league wow so it was just kind of like That's kind of the world that they grew up in. So a lot of times people say, "So what was that experience like?" I said, "Like well, I was like a hood family with money." So that's how the early (laughs) stages was a hood Uh family with money. (laughs) Then we were just a hood family,
2: (laughs) right? So you mentioned, you know, at five you had started playing football and getting your identity from that. When you moved to LA, like when you're in
1: middle school, high school, did that take a step back or did you just kinda keep it moving? Yeah, no, I kept it moving. That's the reason why I said, man, my life was easy. Mm. Because my canopy was always sports. As soon as I got to mm. Cali, I was in sports. Mm. Like, and as long as I had sports, man, all everything, all hell could be breaking out. It didn't mm. even matter. So what about your siblings? Like, how did they respond? Did everybody just
2: adjust like smoothly to this? transition.
1: You know, I think we all have our own trauma story within that. You know, and I know if you you talk to my other siblings, they would. I think my brother, my oldest brother took it mm. the worst because, I mean, he was the oldest and he probably had a greater sense of what was going on. Mm. And also just being one of the older cousins yeah. that, that was a boy, you know, that fell on him to to be. And then, you know, and I don't think he ever had like anything like I had sports. He was never an athlete. Right. He was more like an artist and music and those types of things. And and so that was the kind of the mm. world that he was in. So it really impacted him you know, mm. I mean, literally, he didn't come to know the Lord until he was almost, um, man, almost 50. Mm. He had the the longest journey. He had the mm. hardest journey. Now that man's on fire for the Lord. He's doing his thing, you know, mm. because he God brought him back, you know, from literally the pits of hell. Wow. And my mom went through a tailspin during that time. And well, I don't remember drugs being in the home while we was playing sports, but I, my mom tells me that they were. Mm. But once they got divorced, I mean, it was upfront. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? It, it was it was just one of those things. And so growing up. And so for me, I never smoked. I never drank even to this right. day because not because I was trying to be a good kid or whatever, because I wanted to be a pro athlete like my dad, right. but I didn't want to make the mistakes that my dad made. Gotcha. So
2: while this is happening, you're still advancing in sports and so I know high school is usually a pretty big and important, pivotal moment for someone that's obviously pursuing a pro career first step. And that is oftentimes college. So, like, where does that dream go? The dream that you had, you know, and that you were pursuing in middle school and high school. Where does that find itself by the time you are finishing up high school?
1: Yeah. Well, by the time I'm finishing up high school, you know, my dad reenters the picture. I we my family my aunts I live with my aunts we moved to another place and so earlier in the couple first couple of years all the way to my sophomore year my sophomore year I'm the starting varsity point guard I'm the starting varsity quarterback you know so I'm like okay this is it and then they are like well we're gonna move and I was like oh nah I'm not you know things are set up for me I'm ready to I'm about to move this thing alone and then they but they had to move. And so they moved to a different place, but I was like, I can't do that. So my dad re enters into the picture. He moves into the district that I'm in, right? So that I can continue to stay at the school that I'm going to. And so at that point, my older brother and me stay with my dad, my younger brother. And sister move with them. And so now we're just spread out. So like those last couple of years, we're spread out doing all that. And it's, so it was just one of those things that we're kind of going through. And that's where I kind of obviously rekindled that relationship with with them. So you're saying that the part of the reason why your dad enters the picture is because
2: for various reasons, your mom said, hey, we got to move. We can't stay in the same place. And because you were very invested and had a lot going on in the sports side, you were insistent about sticking around. So the solution that they came up with was your dad moving into the district so that you could still play football there.
1: Yep. That's exactly. So we moved in, bought an apartment. We live there in in an apartment in the area you know, for my last couple of years of high school so I could stay. So I was in Chino Hills, basically is around the corner with the Ball Brothers. It, yeah, you, you know, so it was Ayala High School right in right. Chino Hills. And I, that must have felt pretty good
2: having him there. And then especially so that you can still yeah. keep your football dreams alive.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, so like everything was centered around sports in our family. We was a very right. competitive. It was the nine cousins, right? Mm. One came later. so he made the 10th, but um, then the nine of us, seven boys and two girls, and so it was sports, 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 competition, <laughs> sports, 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 who can eat the most tacos, who can eat the most this, who could? So that's what this world was about. And out of that, I was the GOAT of mm. all the sports, like in gotcha. the Cousins and everywhere right. I went, every team, I was the best player. And so all throughout all of this time, when all kind of, again, hell was supposedly breaking loose, right. I was good. Right. You know, because I was on trajectory to go to the league. Okay. And then here's the thing. Here's what happened. When I graduated from high school. I didn't get any major division one schools offer me. I was just like, nah, nah, I can't do it because in my mind, I wasn't going to the league Mm -hmm. unless I had a major D1. And so that's really what happened. And so, like I said, I'd rather go to a junior college than go to a small 1A school, 1AA school. And so that's what I did. I went to a, a school called Mount Sac, and they did a thing called gray-shirted. I gray-shirted, which basically means you didn't. I didn't take enough credits to start my clock. The NCAA rule is from the time you become a full-time student, your clock starts, and you got five years to play for, right? Mm-hmm. And so what, what they did in junior college was I only took 11 hours. So I, wasn't, I knew I wasn't going to play that first year because they already had an All-American quarterback there, but I was going to wait until next year. Anyway, long story short, man, I ended up like hanging out with my friends, doing stuff I didn't need to be doing. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, that's when God got my attention it was just like, man, there has to be more than life than sports. Wow. So this is in Mount Sac is where? It's in, it's called Mount San Jacinto, which is in the, like the Pomona Inland Empire, okay. yep. like Chino, yep. kind of that area. Okay. So how does God get your attention in that moment? So basically it was during that time. Again, I don't know anything. You would have told me about David and Goliath. Samson and I was like, who are these cats? I don't know. <laughs> I don't have, I don't remember having a Christian conversation, mm. you know, in high school. It just wasn't like, so I wasn't anti-Christian right. at all. It just wasn't a part of my life. And so here I am and my best friend's mom, Cassandra Butler, bought me a Bible and at that time, They started inviting me to church. I started going to church and they was just offering the altar call, the altar call. And I was just like, okay, I guess that's the, if I want to be a Christian, I got to do the Mm -hmm. altar call. And I'm just going through because at this time, like everything is coming at me. This is when Malcolm X was big. Farrakhan was big. Mm -hmm. I don't know any Christians, but I'm seeing Muslims, the nation is like, they're in the neighborhood, they're in the places. And I don't see Christians anywhere kind of doing anything. So Long story short, basically, what I was was like I was. I remember talking to my mom, and I was like, "Mom, I don't understand all these religions," and I was just like, "There are all these things," and I was like, "So guess what? I'm just going to go together, and I'm going to put all the best things of all the religions together, and I'm going to make my own religion." I mm-hmm. like, and so that was it. So basically, I was a functioning Unitarian, you know, mm-hmm. for a time because I was just going to take the best of what I saw taking mm-hmm. place because no one necessarily I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. And so I remember saying one time reading the Bible. And I don't even know what I was reading, but I remember it's like the Lord speaking to me. And it was just like, hey, this Sunday, when you go to church, I'm going to give my life to Christ. Because that's the only way I I thought you can give your life to Christ. So it was like a Tuesday. So somewhere between, I don't know where your theology is, but somewhere between Tuesday and Sunday, (laughs) I became a, a Christian. But I remember, don't know what the pastor preached, went to the only church I knew to go to, New Pleasant Hill Missionary Baptist Church. Went to Pastor Reverend Hill, went there. He preached whatever sermon he preached. But at the end, I knew I was going up and I was going to be giving my life to the Lord. I went up to give my life to the Lord and that was it. Hmm. Then all hell started breaking loose on my life. Wow.
2: So, because it's a fascinating story, like what changed from I'm just going to grab all these different pieces and make my own dahadiism to actually... Saying, no, I actually just want to follow Jesus. Like, was it just the scripture reading or was it something else? No,
1: it it was basically because I was, quote unquote, a good kid. Right. Like, according to everybody else, because I never smoked. I didn't drink because growing up, like all my boys was like, oh, D. Lou, D. Lou's going into the pros. So that's why you Mm. don't do this stuff, you know. And so they would drink. So I was around it all the time. But Mm. my out, it was sort of like, again, boys in the hood. (laughs) I was the athlete. So I was that dude. It was just like I like I was protected by the community. Because I was going to the league like my dad, right? So Ricky, Ricky, yep, yep. that was yeah, yeah. yeah. I was Ricky, I was Ricky. (laughs) So I just remember, like when it when it came, it wasn't like I needed like, oh man, I just need to stop drinking. I need to stop doing all these things. There's certain definitely things I need to stop doing, but really what it came down to was you're not good enough, and you need a savior, Mm -hmm. right? And I knew. Like at this time, it's all about sports. I mean, I have my I have a girlfriend and I'm a bouncer. She's a stripper, you know, and so we we doing our thing and like, I'm, you know, and I'm, all I do is I'm working out. I'm I'm lifting weights because I'm going on. I'm going to the league. And and I just remember during that time, it was also like, man, things were like it. God was a stripping things like I remember going to a McDonald's job fair, trying to get some money, get a job. And like they didn't give me a job, you know, and I was like, I can't get a job at McDonald's. Mm -hmm. So it was just like God was stripping me of just kind of all of my sufficiency that I had, Mm -hmm. you know, of being the man and being everything. Mm -hmm. And so when he started stripping me, that's when I started searching like, man, there has to be more than life Mm -hmm. than this. And then that's when I started searching. I actually became a world religions major because I Mm -hmm. was searching Wow. You know, and so I started studying the nation of Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, African tribal religions. I studied world religions. I was I was searching Mm. for something. I was searching for more. So then you decide that that search ends with you
2: choosing to follow Christ after hearing, you know, Reverend Hill give his message and you come forward. And you said that's when all hell breaks loose. All (laughs) hell breaks loose. What happens then? Okay,
1: again, have a girl. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And she's a stripper. I'm like, now I'm trying to live this life. All of a sudden, I'm just like, okay, what's happening? And again, all this time, like, it wasn't like I came to know the Lord and then Jesus found me a job. No, 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 that's not how it happened. Mm-hmm. Right? We was already, obviously, we was having sex before marriage and all mm-hmm. the stuff, you know? And mm-hmm. I was like, I can't. And and this is, again, all my people, that were, the only Christians that I know was just like, oh, man, it's okay to have sex before marriage as long as, mm-hmm. you know, you plan on marrying her. Like It was like that was the kind of counsel I was getting. But this is one of the things that God, again, used that I know that Jesus is real, that the Holy Spirit is real. Because even though I was getting advice that was saying Mm -hmm. it's good, I knew something. There was an internal witness saying, nah, this ain't right, right? Mm -hmm. And it was the Spirit of God in me before I even knew anything about all the stuff no degrees, nothing. I told you, David and Goliath, I didn't have any of that. But I was like, this ain't right. Right. Mm-hmm. And so we were breaking up and doing like doing that thing and getting back together, breaking up and couldn't find a job. Literally went homeless for a minute. You mm-hmm. know, ended up staying with the girl that I was trying to leave because she was making money. I couldn't make money. And I just remember at one point, it was just like, man, I'm the one who, you know, is making this money for you. And I'm the one, like, I'm and basically, I'm your God. Right. And I was just like, it is just like I couldn't say anything because it's like, God, like you're not showing up. And again, I'm not discipled. I don't know anything besides. I just want to live for something different, you know. And so I'm going through all of that. And then I finally was like, I can't I can't do this anymore. And so it was in that time, in that process that man had a kid Mm -hmm. that had a few offers. It was like University of Miami, University of North Texas and then Oregon State. In Eastern Michigan. So these were the the schools that were like offering. I went to the first one at North Texas and I was just like, the Lord felt like uh, this is where you're coming. This is where you're mm. going. And again, I didn't know the Lord can even talk to you, you know, mm. but I just had this peace. I ended up going and canceling all my other trips, getting there. And then the thought was, all right, I'm going to go here for a semester, get everything established. And then we're going, to I'm going to move you out there. We'll get married, you know, and then we live happily ever after. I get to North Texas. It's January 10th of 1996. I met a guy named Art Hooker. Art Hooker introduces me to me to the first Christian community I ever knew. Mm -hmm. And that's when I start hearing stories like David and Goliath, Samson and Delilah. And I was just like, oh my gosh. And then the thought was, man, Christians like know their Bible. And so every time I, I heard Christians know their Bible, I was like, I would go. And I was like, I gotta go get the Bible and I have to go get it. So literally every single day i was at a different bible study it was whether it's navigators crusade InterVarsity like I, w- I went to a couple of Colts like i was just going cuz i felt like i needed to catch up cuz you know for me i knew football i need like okay. i was in spiritual tour days right mm-hmm. it's like so every single day every single night i am like in the bible cuz i was like i got to catch up i got to know my bible like all christians know their bible mm-hmm. and it was so that's really kind of what was going on and so my first semester there meeting these Christians who were actually trying to live for the Lord, that were that looked like me, talk like me, like, you know, just got me in a sense. And then I was just like, okay, I, I went and this is what happened. I was going to these studies and I started hearing words like evangelism, <laughs> discipleship. I was like, man, I know my friends, they love the Lord, but they ain't talking about this. You see, Christianity to them was don't go to the club, don't drink, don't have sex mm. outside of marriage, don't join a fraternity or sorority. Don't, 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 don't like and when they were all part of the gospel choir, you know, mm. and we so it was just kind of like, all right. So that's what it meant to be the Christian. Don't do. And I was just like, God, I'm real clear on what not to do. Right. I just don't know what you're calling me to do. And mm. here I am. This is the first semester. So I have. My pregnant girlfriend back at home and and she's still stripping and all, you know, in all these worlds, these going. And I'm trying to like, so my natural thought is, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? Because I'm starting to hear things like unequally yoked. i would never even heard of something like that. What is a what mm. is a yoke and a, being mm. unequal? I thought it was an egg. I like literally <laughs> didn't know what any of the stuff was, but I'm starting hearing all these things. And so when I hear about that, I was like, oh. I gotta get her saved. Hmm. And she thought I was in a coat because again, hmm. she saw the transformation. Like I was hmm. one of those dudes that had like one of those like mini Bibles in my back pocket. I was like, man, this is my dagger, you know, yeah. everywhere I go. You know, so I was yeah. I was just all in. Hmm. And so well, here's what happened. I ended up going into these studies, and I said I would go back to my friends, it's like, hey. Evangelism, discipleship—have you ever heard of these terms? it's like you need to come and check these out. And I was inviting them to like crew in a varsity, you know. So they would come, and they was like, "Ah, love the teaching. It's cool, but you know, ah, we may a, a little bit more celebratory in our worship. We even got a little, you know." And they was like, "I can't, I can't get down like this." And I was just like, "All right, well." That's like I didn't know what God did But my call to ministry Happened right then I was like God I want to create something That is both culturally relevant But also doctrinally sound And that's missionally engaged It's about making disciples Because hmm. I was like For the first time God is calling us to do something It's not just about doing church But it's about going And taking the church To the mission field hmm. so let's go When we
2: come back, Dahadi will share how God called him to launch ministries in an urban context and about his fear of how his interracial relationship might threaten that
0: call. That's coming next on Where You're From. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and certificate programs. Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit.
2: What's up where you're from listeners? You like free stuff, right? Well, check this out to hear how you can get my favorite set of earphones, Power Beats Pro. I use these when I work out, cook, and when I'm listening to my favorite podcast, like Where You're From. How can you enter to win the giveaway? Simply fill out our brief survey by clicking on the link in the show notes. Once you do that, you're entered to win. It's just that simple. So won't you do it right now? You'll have until November 7th, the day of the last episode of season 5 to enter. Thanks for listening to Where You're From. Peace y'all. Hey y'all, before we get back to our conversation with Hottie Lewis, I want to share a quick teaser from our next episode with Heather Thompson Day. This is Where You're From.
0: Cuz I wasn't actually like you I'm not selling dope. Right? Like I wasn't doing anything other than like talking out of turn in class. And I won't get into it, but there was a teacher who was inappropriate, who I, because I was always very vocal. I vocally challenged that inappropriateness. And really, that's why they wanted to get rid of me for whatever reasons they may have made up later. It was that I was exposing things that they didn't want to be exposed at that time.
2: Now let's get back to our conversation with Dahadi Lewis on where you're from. Yeah. So it sounds like you're saying that you you get exposed to you know, almost like the playbook, like in the football parlance, right? And you're like, oh, these are the plays. This is how, this is the goal. This is how we win. But then you realize the other folks that were a part of your team before, like they don't even understand these terms. It's a whole different system than what they're used to. So you're like, I want to train and translate this playbook into something that they can do so we can have a, a team that wins.
1: Yeah. My friends love the Lord. They were mm. they love reading the Bible, many hours of prayer, all those mm. things. And right. but for me, it just spoke to my heart. It's just like we gotta hit these streets. Let's go. We gotta start stuff. We gotta start a ministry. Because all the only ministry that was reaching minorities on campus was the gospel choir. Mm. Right. And that and they weren't set up. They were set up to basically sing and what gospel choirs do. Right. Right. So so what do you start? Oh, so I started a ministry. Um, it was called Move men of virtue and excellence. And basically it was like a Christian fraternity like, but it was a Bible study, it was an outreach. And then we used to, you know, so we used to go around the campuses, you got to move, baby. And then they would <laughs> say, move, baby, move. And then the women started a ministry called Proverbs 31, PV 31. And they would say with the PV, three, one, three, one. And so that's how we repped on campus. So here we are, students, I'm a football player, so, I already, so I'm known, I got clout, all those things. Mm-hmm. I'm the captain of the football team and I'm this sold out Christian and I'm going hard for Jesus. I'm like, I'm I'm on a hundred. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like I'm doing this thing for Jesus. And what happens for really the next couple of years, it gets notoriety. Mm-hmm. So Texas Tech, Baylor, TCU, Oklahoma, they start hearing about what's going on at North Texas. And by this time, my first year, what I didn't say, my first year is that I went to Impact, to the Impact Conference. And in Impact 96, I see this dude named William Branch, Deuce, (laughs) and he is up speaking. And I was like, for the first time, I see someone I can relate to. You see, because Mm -hmm. the church was trying to put on a three-piece suit They were trying to put on all this stuff. And I was just like, this is not my world. I'm an athlete. You know, athletes go around with joggers and, you know, slides on all day, you know. And so now all of a sudden you trying to put all this on. And I was just like, that's just not me. And so I see for the first time, man, this dude like who is authentically him, but also loving Jesus. And I was like, I'm sold. So Mm -hmm. I immediately go implement like this kind of newfound ability to contextualize the gospel and not have to repeat church on campus. And I remember going through that. And so now people are just starting to get attracted to it. And so here's what happened. I ended up going through the whole thing, got an agent, like flew back to Cali. He got me an offer. And it's going to be the same trajectory that my dad, like he said, I got you an offer for Canadians, not the NFL, mm-hmm. but for Canadians, right. for a tryout, all of those things. And so I went out there and he was like, but I need you to move to Cali. and I need you to train and to get ready for the, the combine right. and all those things. And it was at that time that I knew I'm done. Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to try to go to the league. I'm not even going to try. And I want to give my life to ministry, helping to start things. And so I was like, I have to move back to Texas. I go through this discipleship program called Young Guns. And, you know, with Tom Nelson, he's teaching me the the Bible two hours a day, every day, you know, Monday through Friday. And then we do that and I'm doing that and I'm teaching people at TCU and teaching people like I'm going around literally to Texas A&M and TCU. And now I've started impact chapters now. So we went from move and PV right. to now we have staff because now, you know, that was all student led. Move in PV was all student led. I graduated and says, hey, you guys. We need to bring these worlds together and let's call it impact. They were all on board because they've been to impact conference. And this is when we meet. Yeah, that's, we meet. <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> that was, that's when we meet. As college students. 99. That's when we meet. And what was the result? God bless. So, you know, there's mutual friends we have like Leon and all of them. And so basically we were all interns, but we didn't have any like campus staff or anybody. We were just no. doing stuff, right? So and we were the people out there into the wilderness. Yes. So figure it out. <laughs> figure it out. So <laughs> we throwing on retreats and we doing all type of stuff together. And so we link up, we're putting on these retreats, we're doing all these stuff. And again, it's, It is contextualized because, you know, we're bringing in Deuce, the ambassador. He's he's come in, he's rapping. Who's
2: William Branch, who you were talking about before, who you had seen up front. And for those who haven't seen, it's hard to kind of put into words in that era to see this guy that's just baggy jeans at the time where that was the coolest thing. The boots, the cornrows could rap with anybody, had bars for days and was this theological giant i mean it was just like this whole package of like when you when we say contextualized you know ministry of just presenting what does it look like to be committed to god in the context of an urban expression deuce was like the <laughs> epitome of that he was the epitome so you you have this ministry at unt university of north texas And now as a intern, as a, you know, you've graduated from college and this is like a full-time ministry that you're building. And it's kind of creating this sense of momentum. And in the midst of creating that, you now don't just go to the conference by yourself like you did in 96, but now you're recruiting a
1: team of people. So how many people came out? Oh, we was bringing, we was bringing 20, 30, 50. I mean, we were... I think one time we took a charter bus. I mean, we yeah. were like, that's what it was like Bring because I wanted people to see both cultural relevant and doctrine sound because at that time, what we were facing, the, the challenge we were facing was that Christianity was either the white man's religion or as a religion for the old people, right? Mm-hmm. And there was just like, those were the two worlds that we were bad. So I was just like, no, God is speaking in a, like in our generation, in our mm-hmm. voice. And like, God has raised up his prophets, his leaders, his people to kind of speak. That is about God's word. Because it was like, either I was around people who got my context, but they didn't have that same commitment to theology right. and mission. Or I was around people who got my mission and theology, but they didn't right, get, get my context. context. It was like, it created this third culture kid for yeah. so many of us during that time.
2: Now, I- the other thing, and this is kind of a unique situation for where you're from, you're the first set of siblings, you and Show, that we've had uh, on the podcast. How did Show get connected to this movement, and what was that like to see your brother in the midst?
1: You know, I was that dude. Like I said, I'm all I'm I'm on fire for the Lord. I'm like everybody. So I got it. My first mission was getting all my family saved. Right. Because I, I was the first one to come to know the Lord. And I was like, I could get everybody saved. And so my brother, again, he's three years younger than me. Show's three years younger. I said, hey, man, you about to graduate, man. You need to move up to Texas and, you know, all that, you know. And so he ended up coming up to Texas, even though he went to Tuskegee. And I, was, I was like, well, come here for a summer. And then I would go and I'm, you know, he's not even saved. I'm teaching him the Timothy principle and Bible and all these things. And I'm forcing him to come. So he comes and he don't give his life to the Lord, but then he goes to Tuskegee. And then in Tuskegee, he starts looking for other Christian leaders because I kind of introduced him to Christians, uh-huh. minority Christians, that while he was at Texas. And then he finds Byron Johnson, he finds campus outreach. They ended up taking him to the impact conference. And now it's that same impact conference where both Lecrae and Show came to know the Lord when um James gave that message upon all messages. Oh my God! You know um, about the crucifixion, and then come to know the Lord, and that was kind of the moment. But it was just really for me, just introducing, showed the Christian community mm. that kind of spilled over to him looking for Christian community in Tuskegee. Would had him going to the conference, you know, and so that's how we got involved. And so then after that in Tuskegee, Tuskegee it was expensive. Right. And I was going to um, (laughs) University of North Texas. And so when we got to a place where we couldn't afford to continue to put him through Tuskegee, because loans and all that, we moved him to live with me and to finish his school in Texas. And then that's pretty much where him and Lecrae and all them, they all met. And then they all had this love for hip hop, you know.
2: All right. So you got this campus ministry, which turns into a church. You got your brother come to faith, all these things. And yet, you know, that's not all the side of you, right? Like there's also at some point, were you thinking about relationships? Were you thinking about, you know, that connection with somebody else and a family or were you just so, so focused on the mission that you oh, were? not even-
1: So that's, that's a, <laughs> that's a good, just good. Just good. <laughs> Rasu. Okay. Okay. So in this time, I'm now single by myself trying to live this life leading these ministries. But I bought in again to that camp myth. You know, choose the girl you like, make the silhouette of the type of woman you like and all those things. You you've heard that <laughs> you've heard that talk if you've been in the youth groups or whatever. Yeah. So I did all that. And then there was this one person and I was just like, okay, there it is. And I was like, we were great friends. She was a leader of the women's ministry. I was a leader of the men's ministry, great friends, all that. You know, it just but we just knew like it just didn't work. Mm. We were great. Together as leaders, but it just wasn't the connection. Wow. Yeah, I mean, so you have the heads of these
2: two different ministries, the men's and the women's. Everybody's probably all the pressure, right? All the our Christian community. Yes. This is obviously the Lord, right? Obviously. Y'all are supposed mm. to be together. Look y'all, at y'all. Mm. Look at how dynamic. Y'all yes. are the team. Mm. And so you got all that. And that's kind of sometimes hard to to discern what people are thinking versus what
1: actually is best because it made sense she loved jesus i love jesus she was beautiful i love beautiful women (laughs) she you know like all the stuff like she caring all of those things like and i was just like Mm. okay this is it but i was just like no this is not it like i just Mm. knew right so end up breaking that off now you know how just we all go through I went to the other side. I just, all I need is you, Jesus. It's just me and you, the (laughs) apostle Paul. I got the gift. You know, that gift lasted for about, yeah. But anyway, I got the gift. I went through (laughs) all of The gift of of singleness. Yeah, the gift (laughs) of singleness. Yeah. So I have have it. I'm going to do it. And then I also was going through a program. And that's, again, this is in 99. So I'm going through a program, which was prohibited for you to actually date Mm -hmm. during that time. So I was just like, I'm good. Mm -hmm. And so here's, and this is where it gets fun. So now I'm in the ministry, I'm leading the ministry, impact, bringing all these things together. And so now I meet this girl. The first time I meet her is Angie, my now wife. I, you know, I try to kick her out the Bible study, right? Cause she actually got to the Bible study there on time. And I'm like, you know, Hey, you know, you're welcome to stay, but we're about to do a Bible study. But she's like, oh no, I'm here for the Bible. So I was like, oh well, welcome. You know, and I, so I started backpedaling and all that, because you know, it's impact. So I'm trying to reach African American students, and she's white, by the Ooh. way, she is white. All right. And so now, you know, I'm on my apostle Paul and we're out doing evangelism and all that. So anytime we would do evangelism, I would say, hey, you, Angie, come with me because she's not a threat. Because I didn't have a problem with interracial dating. But for me, I just always wanted to marry a black woman. So I was just like, she's not a threat. You come with me.
2: She's not a threat to your Paul single
1: science focus. Yes, Yes. my Paul single-minded focus. I'm only on you, Lord, come. Yes, all that. She is not that threat. So I just remember going through, and so she kept showing up. She actually came to know Jesus. When we first met, she didn't even know Jesus. Came to know Jesus Mm -hmm. in that time. Was always there, always around. We went on a mission trip together, service, all this, hitting it, killing it on all levels. And I remember we come back from a mission trip, dropped her off. And by this time, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I think I have feelings for her. And so here's what I say, Rasul. Here's what I say. I said, hey, Angie, you're the type of woman that I would marry if you were black. And so that was the grand. That was my. I was putting my Romeo on right there. I was just like. Wait, pause. <laughs> what was the outcome that you were hoping to get out of saying something like that? I, I don't. I was just trying to be honest. I don't really know what the outcome I don't know what I was expecting. How did she respond to she, that? If she was here, she would say, she got excited for a minute. She's like, oh, well, I can't do anything about that. Uh, so you can leave now. So. <laughs> You know, so I don't know how we got through that. (laughs) I think I blacked out because I I don't know exactly what happened there. But I was just like, you're the type of woman if you were black. So what happened was somehow she got through that. She went away for boot camp because she was in the Air Force, went away Mm -hmm. for boot camp, and I start really missing her. And then long story short, four months later, and I was like, all right, I I want to do this. And so, but this is where I'm going through identity crisis. Cause one thing I didn't say my origin story, I grew up around pro black. I mean, I told you about nation of Islam, but pro pro black. I mean, my aunt was the only woman that spoke at the million man March. Mm. Like, so I'm talking about my, one of my aunts ran for president, Mm. right? I grew up in the don't trust the white man, kind Mm of all of that. My mom went to join the black Panther party. Like I'm talking about, I got cousins in the nation of Islam, like that type of like very pro-black, you know, thing. And so like I'm going through all of this and I'm ashamed. So mm-hmm. I'm walking down the street with her. And if a black somebody I would kind of let her hand go a little bit. I'm taking her to impact conferences, like, oh, what y'all mm-hmm. think? Because now people have been like, man, am I Uncle Tom? Am I a sellout? Because that's what people were saying.
2: Rewind for those that, you know, that may not know, because I mean, especially thinking about in the 90s is, uh, is such a different time. Like, what was some of the stigma and where did that come from in the black context of being with a white woman, especially for a black man?
1: Yeah, it was just like we losing all of our black men. Mm. That's when like movies like Jungle Fever and all those mm-hmm. things were coming out. And like, And I've asked many black Christians, would you rather me marry a black non-Christian or a white Christian? More times than not, they would tell me black non-Christian, mm. right? And wow. and I just recognize, man, so much of our identity is in our blackness and not in Christ, mm. right? And so I had to go through all of that. After I got with her, I broke up with her because of that stigma. Like, am I an Uncle Tom? Am I a solid? Because by this time now, you know, again, you heard, I told you some of my origins are now I'm at, I'm I'm with Impact, but I'm with Crusade, which is a white organization, Right, even though I'm working with Impact, I'm with Crusade, I'm at Denton Bible Church, which is a white church. And now I'm falling in love with a white woman. I was like, oh, my Mm. gosh, am Mm. I an Uncle Tom? Am Mm. I a sellout? And it was just kind of like, oh, well, I guess I am. You know, so I had to go through that. And so my wife, more than any person in the world, helped me to find my identity in Christ. Like I am an African-American Christian. I'm a black Christian. But, you know, I am Christian that expresses my Christianity in the way that I've expressed it. Gotcha.
2: Yeah. And shout out to Angie. It sounds like she was patient with uh, you and <laughs> beyond patient. All, all the journey. So how long does it take for y'all go from significant other to marriage?
1: So we ended up getting married 2001. So a year, like, a okay. year later. Wow. So-
2: Amazing. Okay. So at this point, you know, you boot up. You know, you see a ministry. It would seem like even the church started with Lifeline. The flag is firmly planted in Texas. You found the promised land.
1: Yeah, is that, that what happened? That's not. It didn't, it didn't stay there. Like I'm. So it's 2004. We started a ministry again. If you're keeping track, it went from Men of Virtue and Excellence Proverbs 31 to Impact 99. 99 Impact. It went to two, to 2001, and then went to Plum Line. Plumb line to from 2001 to 2004. 2001 is when I got married. Three years later, um, this thing is growing so much that we have, we have a college ministry that has daycares and all that because people were not leaving Denton. They was like, I'm staying in Denton. I'm, I love it here. Mm-hmm. I love this community. So we ended up starting a church in 2004, Lifeline. So 2004, we start the church. So I was cool with it being a did We just bought a house in 2007, bought a house, in it for 10 months, ready to go. And then that's when a guy named JB came, you know, because I, I brought him in and says, I would love for you just to show me like how we can leverage this platform for the glory of God, for Urban Context, to be the last generation. Because in 2001, it was with James Roberson. Mm-hmm. At, at one of those retreats that I remember saying, like, who's going to disciple us? Who's going yeah. to Like, we were just like crying out. like, And then that's when, like, for me, it was like, that's it. I'm going to be the last generation to feel this feeling. Mm. And James and I was in the ocean. Yeah, Florida. In and so this is yeah. it, the last time. So that same commitment drove. And ever since then has drove every decision that I have made, mm. you know, is to be the last generation. I don't want anybody else to feel that feeling that we felt. You know, in that time. After that, now it's, we're 2007. I bring this guy in. He was just like, hey, I'm trying to say, how do we make Denton? Because I just made the commitment. I'm here for the next 20 years. He was like, "Ah, I just feel like if you planted any major urban hood, you'd be able to spark a movement for Jesus. And I was like, ah, okay, I'll pray about it. You know how you tell somebody you pray about it? Where he's like, oh, that's not what I'm here to talk to you about. So let's get on to the real stuff. I was like, let's pray about it. But I actually did pray, and God changed the question in my heart from why should I leave Denton to why am I staying in Denton? And mm. I recognized that I was staying in Denton because it was easy, it was comfortable. I was now, I had a church, you know, I'd have to lock my doors at night. I was a football chaplain at the University of North Texas. Like they gave me a building. No matter if one person showed up, or 200 people, I got my salary paid. I had a blank check in Denton. Mm. And God just started speaking to me, and Many of us define God's will by the path of least resistance. Mm. Like, it's like, God, why does it feel like we are always calling Christians to easier and better? It's never harder and worse. And I recognize that so many of us, our North Stars are comfort, and we're addicted to our comfort. Mm. And, you know, and so I started asking, I asked about 16 people that really, that I looked up to and I cared about their opinion. I asked them basically, do you think I need to stay in didn't or leave did 15 out of 16, I'm like, oh man, I think you need to leave. I think you better have a greater impact. And only one person said stay. And that was a guy I co-pastored with. (laughs) He was the only one that said stay. So that October, I flew down to Atlanta as a group of us, man. Some of the influential minority believers, we were all in that room. And I remember just lamenting. It's just like, man, I'm so lonely. I'm so isolated. And that was what all of us were. It was just like, man, we're so lonely, so isolated because we feel like third culture kids. And I just remember leaving there. And felt like the Lord was shifting something in me. And then that was mid-October. So by December 15th of 2007, I was before the lifeline. It says, hey, you guys, the Lord is calling us to move and ultimately to go to Atlanta to start a church. And then when we made that commitment, 25 others says, hey, if you guys go, we're going with you. Mm. And so at that time, 25 people made a commitment to leave Denton, to come to Atlanta, to start Blueprint Church and that number eventually became 40 people. So I knew that what I was in now, by this time, if you're keeping track, 96 all the way to 2008, 2008, I knew I was just like, I can't copy and paste what we what I've done in Denton in Atlanta. So I need something. So I ended up going to Little Rock and there's this residency called Fellowship Associates in Little Rock. My, my wife and I spent in family. Now we have four kids. We had to get there. Then- stayed there for a year. And what I would do is I would travel back and forth to Atlanta, you know, whether two days or two weeks and just ask people about the church, spent that time. And then I basically begin to contextualize the church for Atlanta. What does that look like? And that's when we came up with the name Blueprint and all the stuff and all the things there. But we named it Blueprint because the definition of a Blueprint is a plan or a process that's used as a guide to start something new. In a world That is becoming more urban. It felt like all of our churches would be going, becoming more suburban. Mm. And so we wanted to embrace the beauty and the complexity, you know, the density, the diversity of the city. And so it was like we wanted to establish a blueprint. And we wanted to be a church that's planting other churches because we want to be a church that's going to be the last generation. To leave the urban context for sound discipleship. And so that's what we did. Love that. And I love the vision behind
2: the name Blueprint. And so the blueprint wasn't just for effective discipleship in the context of this local body, but you're saying you wanted a blueprint for effective ministry of discipleship in the urban context that could go global.
1: Yeah, Again, everything has been about the last generation to leave the uh-huh. urban context. So it was yeah. for me, we was going to start Blueprint right. and then we was going to start a church planting. And so yeah. literally year one, we started Blueprint. Year two, we started a thing called Rebuild. So mm-hmm. we was just like, we jumped in because I was just like, the reason why we came was not just to start a church, but it was to start a church that's starting churches. Mm-hmm. So we started way too young. It was like, I think about it now, it's like teenage pregnancy, mm-hmm. Like, but we were about planting churches But that was what I did. Like just like when we was in a campus ministry. As soon as I started Impact, I was helping other people start Impact. When I started the church, helping other people start churches. And then I went to like I would travel to New York for a season and then like take a week and spend two days in New York, two days in St. Louis, two days in Cali. And I did that for a couple of years. And then that's when Southern Baptists heard about me. And they were like, hey, we want to help you do that. And so, you know, I was like, I don't know anything about Southern Baptist, but then someone told me about what Southern Baptist really is. It's autonomous churches hmm. that put their money into a pot for the purpose of missions. I was just like, I'm all in for that. Because hmm. I was just like, we can do more together than we can apart. And I was just like, I'm in, let's go. And so we joined SBC as a church.
2: One of the things that I've been inspired by in the Blueprint story and specifically thinking about what does it mean to rebuild a city, a neighborhood? Is the way that you engaged a local public school that was in distress? You know, tell us a little bit about that. How did that happen? And, and 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 like, yeah, paint a picture for us.
1: Yeah. So once we got here at Blueprint, we want to be extremely local. Like we said, we want 50% of our people to be able to walk to church. You know, and so we're really it was about like, how do we become indigenous to our context. And so one of the things was, we moved into the old fourth ward. The old fourth ward is the largest section eight housing in all of the Southeast. It has, but also has the fastest growing gentrifying community here is the birthplace of Martin Luther King Jr. So it's a very historic neighborhood, but it was a very also deprived neighborhood. And so when we planted the church at a few years in, we basically moved into the community. And while we're in the neighborhood, you know, the question is always schooling. you know, uh, many Christians told us, don't don't put your kids in the public school, don't homeschool them, private school them. And I was just like, no, we're we're gonna put our kids in the public school. And part of the reasons why is that a problem is not a real problem until it's your problem. Mm-hmm. And so it was just like and something becomes your problem through one or two reasons. One is through relationship and the other one is through proximity. And so the only public school, elementary school that they had at the time was the local Hope Hill. Hope Hill Elementary was the third worst performing school. It was on the bottom of the bottom of all schools, you know, in the APS school system. And so it was like, we're going to put our kids in there. And so we put our kids there, it became our problem. Angie started going there. She started volunteering there all the time. She was there so much. She was like, Miss Lewis, you're here so much. Do you want a job? And she, they was just like, what kind of job are you talking about? She was like, well, we can make you the cafeteria lady, right? And it was just like, Angie, that is the most strategic job that you can possibly have at the school. And then she was like, that's the one person who sees every student every single day. So we live hmm. in the neighborhood. She sees every kid every single day. She's doing so well that like people, she was just like, hey, are there anybody else like you? They moved her from the cafeteria later. They moved her to, because it was a Title One school, low-performance school, they moved her to the community liaison. Then she replaced herself with another Blueprint member. And then we basically says, if you're going to be in the city group, everybody needs to join the PTA. And so we had people who was all on the PTA. And then, so then we had teachers who started coming to church, you know, to it. And then, so basically at one point we recognized that our membership was on that campus 270 hours a week. That we Mm. have between teachers and students and volunteers, that became our problem. It was a real problem. And then basically we start doing things like day one, which we invite every kid in the school. The first day of school, they come into the school and we announce every kid, of you know, that walks through the doors and just celebrating them says, we see you. This is we're excited, you know, and we're just we go through that. Wait, and so you announce every kid who comes through what door? The door. So like when you come through the door, you get off the bus and you walk through the door. There's only one way right. into the school. We right. every kid we, we we set up a soul train line and we <laughs> announce every kid. We says, hey, Hey, this is Jack. Hey, Jack, Jack. You know, it's like, get up for Jack. Wow. And then every single kid who goes through there, we are celebrating. We're handing them pencils. And basically what we're saying is that we see you. Mm. God sees you. And, and that was really just our, our heart. It was just like, we want to be present. We want to be local. We want to embrace. We want to take responsibility for our boulevard. Wow. I get
2: chills thinking about that progression In terms of presence, you know, now that you can see it's been years since that process started, what have you seen be the
1: impact for the students there for the school? Yeah, well, the school turned from the third worst to one of the highest performing, you know, so it was one of those schools, again, the the neighborhood was gentrifying, but the gentrifying community was not sending their kids to Mm. the school. It was one of those schools. They didn't even ask you. Everybody got free lunch. If you just went to the school, no matter what wow. your income is, because it was just that many low performing and low, low income. And, but we were just there and and I just think that so much, I think as believers, we're, we're afraid of the boogeyman, but Jesus mm. says upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are a defensive mechanism. What Jesus was saying is he's just saying, Hey, The church, I am gathering a people for the purpose of attacking the gates of hell. Mm. Too many of us run our Christian life of trying to keep hell out of the church instead of a group of mobilized people trying to attack the gates. And all the advice that we always give is like, you know, try to keep your protect and protect, protect, protect. And it's just like, but what about attack, 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 attack? So Blueprint Church is like, it's about, we're on the attack. Mm. Like we're attacking the gates of hell.
2: Wow. That's amazing. And then, so tell me a little bit about my boulevard and what
0: you're
1: doing now to try to multiply that impact. We started Blueprint in 2010, 2009, 2010. We then launched Rebuild in um, 2012, right? Mm-hmm. And that was to help rebuild the city to through church plants and all that. So I right. said, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take Rebuild and I'm going to keep that as a nonprofit and I'm going to changed the name to Boulevard. And so we started Boulevard. And so Boulevard, NAM, Sin Network basically says, we'll take on Boulevard. And then I was just like, let's do it. And again, I want to be the last generation. I was just like raising money. I didn't want to do, I was tired of all that. Let's do it. And they said they want to help me to be the last generation. So 2015 to 2018, that's what I did. And that's exponentially. I went from me being the only one starting like doing these church planning cohorts to mm. they hired multiple people, Sam Dula and uh, other people in Jorge and all these other people. And now we were able to train 40 to 50 urban mm. pastors every single year. Right. And so we're doing that now. And I'm just like, Oh, so by in 2018, this is when all the stuff, divorce and white evangelicalism, all okay. the stuff is going on. And I'm like, oh, here we go. So now I'm like, I got to say something about this. And so we go through all that. Long story short, what ended up happening was in 2018. They came and I said, hey, either I got to go because I don't like, I'm not trying to blow up the set, but I got to speak on this because this is impacting our community. He's like, let's double down. I ended up doing the thing with J.D. Greer called Undivided. So we did that just to kind of speak to some of that. But then in 2018, the other thing that happened was the vice president, of Sin Network stepped down. And he basically came to me and said, hey, you're the person that needs to replace me. So in 2018, I basically took on that role. So now I went to leading Sin Network and now we're planting over 600 churches every year. And again, part of me was just like, I want to leverage this Hmm. to the urban context. I want to take these resources and I want to help the context. And so it's always been the last generation, last generation. How do I leverage these resources? So 2018 to 2021, we know all of what's happened. Then you had the pandemic, you had all the stuff. So in 2021, I was just like, I loved it. I, I didn't leave disgruntled. I didn't leave disgruntled. I didn't leave because of any frustration. But 2021, I basically said, God, are you calling me to be Esther Are you releasing me to be Paul? Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I can continue to maintain this position and leverage it for the purpose that you have placed on my heart. I can do that. And so I felt like God gave me a release to focus. Mm -hmm. And so in 21, I went to Kevin Azale and he was just like, man, I I love you. I appreciate all that you're doing. I just want to I just want to fan the flame of what God is doing. And in 2021, we made an agreement and basically I stepped down. And now Vance Pittman holds that job as the, the president of Sin Network. And I basically started My Boulevard. And My Boulevard is really about making disciples in the context where they live, work, and worship. And I'm basically returning back. I, so it's just like I've had mid different jobs, but I've always been on the same thing. Like, how do mm-hmm. I help people start movement, gospel mm-hmm. movement, tangible gospel movement in their context? So all the way back from Denton, it was college campuses to now— it's churches, it's church planted, it's nonprofits, and so that's what Boulevard is. It's at the core is that we are trying to help leaders make disciples, right? God has exposed me to so many things over my time, and now I'm just like, man, I just want to continue to helping minority believers to mm-hmm. take the gospel to where they mm-hmm. live, where they work, and they worship. And like, how do we make this happen? And you know, and that's really. Kind of what Boulevard is about So we we do training We have this thing called The City Syllabus Is where we're bringing Urban practitioners together So that you mm. know Anybody who's doing this content Is dealing with Majority, minority Multi-ethnic Context you're going to get the resources that it is sifted through. It's going to be a deep dive. It's it's thinking about people like me. Like we're not just talking mm-hmm. about the apologetic of do we need something? No, man, we're tied all that. Like we're beyond that. No, this is for the practitioners that mm-hmm. are doing it. And it's like, how do we help those people take the deep dive? Because people like me, people like you, what ends up happening is that we get cherry picked or we become part of these white evangelical organizations, which I love. But what happens is, is that we end up spending our best energy creating an apologetic for why we do what we do. And then what ends up happening is that we don't take a deep dive and we're not spending our best energy and taking a deep dive to solving our problems Mm. that are in our community. And I was just like, I want to spend my best years. So I got 25 more years. I'm 47 years old. And if I go to about, you know, whatever, 25 years after that is 65, 70, (laughs) whatever that is, like, I was just like, Lord, I want to spend these next years I want to be the last generation, you know, and I talk about the 2100 in the year 2100. My oldest son will be 92 years old. My middle Mm -hmm. son will be 91 and my youngest son will be 89. I want to know that the stuff that I'm investing now will have an impact on them in the year 2100 for their kids, kids, you know, and this is like and that's what I want to give the rest of my life, to. And so that's what this is about.
2: This is Where You're From. I'm Rasul Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Ryan Clevenger, Mary Jo Clark, and Jade Gussman and was engineered by Kevin Burgess. I also want to thank Rachel and Stephen for their help in supporting and promoting Where You're From. Thanks, y'all. Where You're From is part of The Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries.